Hi, this is Stephanie Fay, and this is season two. Thanks for joining. Welcome to season two, episode six. In this episode, we're going to talk about the dark side of mindfulness, and I'm going to be pulling from a book called Affect Dysregulation and Disorders of the Self by Alan Shore, as well as the Harvard Center on the Developing Child, Thinking in Systems by Danella Meadows, and a book called McMindfulness by Ronald Purser. So to start this episode, I'm going to ask you to reflect on whether the following phrase rings true or false to you. The phrase is, My anxiety is because of my thinking. And we're going to look into the deeper layers of that in this episode. So to start, let's explore the concept of mindfulness itself. If you Google the word mindfulness, a definition that pops up is a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations. So this is definitely reflective of the idea of self-regulation, but what we're going to explore in this episode is how this concept can actually be detrimental as well to us and society. To lead into that, I'm going to just give you a definition of some wording that I'm currently using about the science of mindful systems change. And so what I am getting at with the idea of mindful systems change is that it is about creating space and awareness for us to notice the present moment and the present conditions that we experience while also acknowledging the systems that interact and have interacted throughout history that contribute to these present moment experiences and then accepting the need or the possibility of the need to dismantle, release, or change those systems so that we can create new desired experiences. So still an idea of acknowledging the present moment and accepting certain things, but part of this is the acceptance of needing to change. And I think that there has been a negative connotation to the idea of change, that somehow to say that we need to change or dismantle or release something means that it is wrong or defective or something like that, or that something is wrong with us or our organization or our group or our society or whatever. I think that there's a, another mindset that can surround the idea of change, which is that the acceptance of the need to change is a signal of a higher level of awareness and a higher level of complexity. So that's just something I want to add to this episode as we go into it. So going back to the first phrase that I started with, which is my anxiety is because of my thinking or my stress levels are due to my mental chatter. This may be entirely true. In fact, I talk about that all the time. What this doesn't acknowledge, however, is first of all, where does this mental chatter or these anxious kind of thoughts, where do they come from in the first place? 
It doesn't acknowledge the feedback systems that went into the building of our self-regulatory and self-soothing circuitry. And this is really key, and we're going to go into that in the next section. So it ignores what happens to us in our earliest environments that build up the circuitry to help us self-regulate. It also doesn't acknowledge the systems and structures that we are in that don't promote resilience and dynamic self-regulating and co-regulating systems to really be nourished and built up and evolved. So the reason why I call it the dark side isn't because it's malicious or evil, but because it hasn't yet been illuminated. So it's not that our idea of mindfulness might be wrong, it just might be incomplete because it's looking too much at putting a lot of focus just on one individual and in a way the symptom of their anxiety and mental chatter without widening and deepening the view of all the other interacting systems that are coming into play, especially historically over time, until this present moment. It also doesn't acknowledge the systems that come into play with the people we interact with in this world. And so when I'm often hearing about this word of mindfulness, it's this idea of calmly accepting that person's anger or overreaction. But again, what it's not doing is acknowledging where that person's anger and overreaction and dysregulation is coming from. And I think by having a deeper, wider perspective on all that naturally leads to a state of compassion and more flexible solution seeking so that we may be able to access certain circuitry a little more easily by having that deeper understanding. Instead of using so much energy to try and calm ourselves, calm ourselves, calm ourselves when we feel anxious or angry, or we're judging that other person and how they're reacting, instead of using all of these apps and all of this money that is now being spent in a lot of organizations to alleviate that symptom, I think opening up and illuminating the bigger perspective and the historical data that feeds into all of this, I think can lead to a natural shift that makes mindfulness more easily. So we're going to look at these things on a personal level and then what I call a socio-biological level. So on a personal level, the reason why I'm calling it a dark side of mindfulness is once again, it's not illuminating all of the systems that have led up to your mental chatter, mental noise, anxiety, all that stuff in the first place. And what I believe to be a big part of that anxiety and noise and all of those other things comes from some misguided efforts we have to self-soothe. And the reason why we are attempting to do all these things to self-soothe or self-regulate is because we didn't quite get enough guidance or modeling or nourishment of some of those mechanisms throughout our lives on both an explicit and an implicit level. So let me explain that. If you are experiencing what we call a mental chatter, mental noise, anxiety, and it feels like it just can't stop, there may be a possibility of what I would even call an atrophying of the self-regulating circuits that exist within you. And because these are so atrophied, you have other mechanisms, other feedback loops, like I mentioned in the previous episode, that compensate for this and that may even come in as like a muscle memory to help you figure out how to get into a different state to avoid the state that you might currently be in if you are having these anxious or spiraling kind of thoughts. And some of these mechanisms are things that are external to us, 
like I also mentioned in the last episode, these conditional regulators where we use television or shopping or even an over-reliance on communicating with people in order to avoid a state that we are not enjoying or preferring in a certain moment. So just reflect on that just for a second, that the moment you turn on the TV, the moment you grab your phone, the moment you try to find somebody to talk to, the moment you do a lot of things, and there's nothing wrong or right about this, this is not where I'm going, but just notice that it is generally to change the state that you are experiencing. If you're understimulated, you want to be more stimulated. If you're overstimulated, you want to be soothed, as an example. So just notice that that is what you're doing with your behaviors. And then the other piece of that is, and this is kind of where the idea of mindful versus not mindful is coming in. Mindful being this idea of being more consciously aware, is when you are turning to those mechanisms, are they automated without much consciousness on your part? Are you just turning on the TV because that's what you always do? Or you're eating the ice cream because that's what you always do? Are you calling that friend because that's what you always do? Or is there a conscious moment of intention, some space in there is one part of this question. And secondly, are you aware of your ability to use your mind in a way that could possibly change your point of awareness to something else that could change your internal state? The mind is capable of that. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it is capable of that. It has to just do with its point of focus, point of awareness. So is your mind going through a repetition of a conversation or future projection of something that's going to happen? that is leading to this type of state that you don't like? And are you aware that you have the capacity to switch that beam of awareness onto something else? And that just by doing that, you will create a different internal state. So this is where if we don't find that easy to do, we will generally turn to these symptom alleviation mechanisms, or I call them patterns of instant gratification, pigs. If we don't have that acknowledgement and that conscious awareness of our ability to use our own mind to create an internal state, we will turn to those things and we won't be able to sit with ourselves very long. If you're having that kind of anxious thinking, the spiraling thinking, whatever that is, you won't be able to just stand there and sit with it. You will need to do something to switch it, whether it's going for your phone or whatever that is. Or you will sit and it will just continuously spiral without you being able to redirect your thoughts. So if this is the case, it means there's been an atrophying, a weakening of your internal self-regulatory networks. And this is where the past comes in. This is where history comes in. So I want to look at this in terms of personal history for you. And then after that, I want to look into more of our social history to see how that affects multiple levels and layers and interconnecting networks. So on a personal level, what is important to understand when you are first born is that you do not have the structures in place, the neural and behavioral resources in place yet to self-regulate. You are biologically dependent on a caregiver of some sort to help you regulate your own system and get your needs met. So some research would say that we outsource these abilities, these self-regulating abilities to our caregivers. This means that it's not genetically programmed. It means that it's not automatic. It means that it's dependent on 
what the circumstances and situations and emotional states and neural and behavioral resources are available to our caregivers. And what is available to our caregivers is also dependent on their own history, their own interactions when they were children with their caregivers, and what happened there. Because their earliest experiences with their caregivers is going to be related to the building of the circuitry for them to be self-regulating. And if they don't get what they need from their caregivers in those earliest environments, they don't have that ability to self-regulate, which means that it's very difficult for them to pass that on to you because we are very experience dependent in terms of that. Our brains are not built with these features. So let me give you a few quotes that I'm going to paraphrase from Alan Shore's book, Affect Dysregulation, just because he uses a lot of big words and I don't want to lose too many people on this. So as opposed to growth-promoting environments, growth-inhibiting environments negatively influence the building up of self-regulatory attachment systems. An infant's transactions with an emotionally unresponsive or misattuned environment are stored in the infant's developing corticolimbic circuitries as visceral, nonverbal procedural memories. Now let me just dissect that a little bit. So we can have a growth-promoting environment or we can have a growth-inhibiting environment. The growth-promoting environment can help us build up that self-regulatory attachment system and a growth-inhibiting one prevents it or negatively influences it. We can have different types of transactions, which goes to the serve and return response that I've talked about from Harvard Center on the Developing Child, with our environment, which includes the people in our environment. So this can be caretakers, but also siblings and and anyone else who's around us regularly, as well as what happens as we get older and our social circles widen, obviously. But we're talking right now, just for simplicity's sake, to the earliest years, our zero to three years. You can have unresponsive or misattuned. So your cries and demands and vocalizations that you use to get attention and get certain needs met may not be responded to or misattuned. So an angry reaction to you crying out for a basic necessity of life, right? Which is inappropriate. It's misattuned. Those are stored within you in their developing circuitry as visceral, something you feel within your organs and the deeper layers of your skin, nonverbal, Nothing that you can really make sense of in terms of words or explanations or categories of labels or anything like that. Procedural memories, so almost like automatic memories that aren't stored as a more of an explicit memory where you can, for example, if I ask you to name certain presidents or states, you can call that up or push it down. Like you can call that up when needed. This is more of a mechanical awareness of how things work. Just to go on a little bit more, paraphrasing from his book, structural limitations with a caregiver's emotional processing abilities are reflected in an inability to comfort and regulate the infant's distress. Exposure to this leads to inefficient coping mechanisms that can't adaptively switch in response to stressful external situations. So a caregiver's inability to process emotions And I want you to reflect on if there was anyone in your life when you were young who had an inability to attune to your distress in a self-regulating, co-regulating way. If that existed within your earliest environments, there will be some issues for you now 
in being able to regulate your own distress because these are conditions that are needed for us to build up that kind of circuitry. Now, very few of us have had perfect parenting situations, perfect childhoods like that, where every need was perfectly attuned to and responded to. So it's not a question of blame because we have to work with what we have now and we have certain behavioral neural resources now and we need to figure out how to work with them. But it is to acknowledge that our earliest experiences may have had an effect. And the reason why that's important is it makes it so it's less self-blaming. Because I find that that is something that happens to a lot of people when they're feeling anxious or they lash out in anger or they overreact or they shut down or whatever that is. They become very self-blaming about it. That it's completely them. It is absolutely an isolated thing about their brain, the neurochemicals in their individual brain as an isolated type of system, that they are defective somehow, that their brain is defective. And I really, really want to get this across right now that we are part of feedback systems and the way our brains are built and specifically the self-regulatory circuits of our brain are built through these responses and attunements within our environments, the people around us and the caretakers, these serve and return relationships. So it is not just my anxious thoughts are causing my stress. There are much deeper layers to that. And when we label it in that way and then we end the sentence with that, that my anxiety is because of my thinking, period, we are not acknowledging our earliest experiences. And that puts a lot of burden on our shoulders. Not only burden, but it leads us to think that we are defective in some way. So what I want to just return to in this section of the personal level is that when you are using these symptom alleviation mechanisms or patterns of instant gratification to avoid a certain state that you're in, it might also be when you are feeling anxious or distressed or whatever that is, there might also be an opportunity for you to acknowledge that your inability in that moment to figure out how to self-soothe in that sense might also be related to certain needs that weren't being met when you were young. Again, it's not about blame of the caregivers now. What I find helpful to do at this level is after acknowledging that there may have been certain misattunements or unresponsiveness to some of your needs as you were young, which is a, is a fairly natural thing that happens in our human society, but it can happen in some situations more than others, is to now expand your view to your caregivers and take a look at what they may have been receiving in terms of their caretakers when they were little. Your grandparents, so your parents' parents, your caregivers' parents, were they very attuned to and responsive to their needs? And you may not know all those answers, but just allow for the possibility of what could come up in terms of that. And what I find helpful with that is it just allows us to acknowledge this buildup of systems, to acknowledge some of this misattunement and unresponsiveness that may have happened so that we can understand and possibly now figure out what is that visceral, nonverbal memory you have that's being triggered by an event now. And that memory may lead to a verbalization in your mind of what it means that you are being rejected and you are being rejected because you're not loved. 
or you're not valued, you're not worthy. So there are these deeper core beliefs that might be trying to make sense of those earliest experiences that come up now for you to explain this sense of dysregulation. And if you can get to even just a little bit of awareness of this, I find that it helps me when I try to do this. For example, if I'm feeling a certain way, I'm feeling anxious about something, instead of turning on the TV or grabbing that food or whatever that is, I very intentionally stop doing everything that I'm doing and I sit and I just let the sensations happen. And then I try to just get a sense of what are these sensations possibly representing as a belief. And then just doing that, I don't usually even need to find a solution at that moment, but I often don't have the craving for whatever it was that I was about to do. It softens its grip. It releases its grip on me. And I then have the opportunity to choose something else, which may still be watching the television and eating whatever that is, but now from a state of calm instead of a state of me trying to avoid whatever that thing is. And what this also does is it helps me connect the dots with different patterns. Because if I notice every Tuesday night that this happens or every night when I come home, I can start to figure out what is it that's happening that maybe triggers this feeling. And that gives me a chance to explore that pattern, which allows me also to update the belief structure using my mature adult mind and all the perspectives that I've accumulated. So if the belief is somewhat related to I'm lonely, which might mean I am alone, I am not loved or I'm valued only for performance, or one of those beliefs. I mentioned a couple of those in the previous episode. By acknowledging it now and letting the sensations come up now in that visceral, nonverbal way, where I try to figure out the words that go with it, I give my mature mind now, and the mature logic models I have now, a chance to update that information and actually introduce the data that contradicts that. So if the feeling is I am on my own, I'm not supported or something like that. My emerging evolved adult mind can now allow for some of the circuitry to activate that gives me the data that contradicts that statement that I have a lot of support and comes up with examples. Okay, so that's an example on that personal level where mindfulness just doesn't go deep enough, I think. I think that we can use mindfulness in a way to go into those deeper layers, but we need to go there, I think. That's my personal opinion, that we need to acknowledge where a lot of this comes from in order for it to release its grip on us. Now, on a sociobiological level, and I want to go more into this in another episode as well, but what I want to say for this is that it's the same thing that we're talking about on a personal level in terms of if we just say things like my anxiety is because of my thinking, we're not acknowledging the other systems. But now in terms of this misattunement and unresponsiveness of caregivers to infants as they are developing that self-regulating ability, the issue here with overall messaging of mindfulness is often that it is, first of all, very individual focused. So it's not about creating changes in any of the systems that contribute to some of this. And it might even create a kind of spiritual ego or mindful ego that I am able to self-regulate. So why is that person not able to do it? And it can create these group identities as well. We're the mindful ones. That subgroup of humans over there is not mindful. They're overreactive and they're this and this and this. So what this does is it is also, once again, it's the dark side of mindfulness because it's not illuminating the multiple systems that are interacting 
that might contribute to a caregiver's misattunement or unresponsiveness to their child's distress. And so a couple layers on that is to think about, first of all, like what I was just saying, what was the caregiver's experiences? But now, why were the caregiver's experiences that way? And that might also lead us to thinking about what kinds of policies and structures are in place and have been in place for long periods of history that might prevent caregivers from being able to attune to their child's developing cortical limbic circuitry in ways that are self-regulating. So whether that's systems and policies and structures that have been in place for a long time that prevent people from earning enough money to be able to spend a little more time at home because they have to work multiple jobs, systems of oppression and violence that create trauma and they create ruptures in some of the behavioral and neural circuitry due to those traumas and the history that then lead to a passing down from generation to generation of these limitations within a caregiver to emotionally process distress, as an example, and handle certain levels of stress from a child. And these traumas can include mass societal traumas, as well as how those lead into other traumas that are existing from a, on a person-to-person level within different family structures. So I want to go more into that topic on that sociobiological level and collective trauma. I want to go into that in a future episode. I just wanted to introduce that as an idea here in terms of what we are missing in a lot of the teaching that I see about mindfulness. Because in that book, McMindfulness, what I really agree with that he's saying is that when we try to just be calm and accepting of whatever responses are arising in the present moment, it is not getting to the place of us questioning the systems we are a part of that could lead to all of this. And that also doesn't acknowledge the even wider questioning of the history of some of these systems and what they could be doing to massive portions of the population's ability to self-regulate. So I would like to propose the idea of using mindfulness as a way to illuminate more of that history, both on a personal level and a societal level. So let's end with a quick summary, which is that the dark side of mindfulness isn't about it being mindfulness being wrong or right, but rather that we need to illuminate wider perspectives of why we might not be mindful in the, in the first place. And part of that is going to be acknowledging that your anxious thinking and your stress levels might also be related to your self-regulating networks, which is related to circuitry that gets built up in childhood and has a lot to do with your caregivers' abilities and neural and behavior resources to process emotions and distress and attune to and respond to your signals. And the other part that we need to illuminate with this idea of mindfulness is how all the different interacting systems throughout history have led us to the present moment symptoms that we experience. And what can we possibly do to accept the idea that we may need to change or disrupt or dismantle some of these systems that are doing it instead of just applying the ointment of mindfulness on top of these discomforts and distressing experiences that we might have? How do we go deeper into the root causes of this? So two reflection questions for you. When do you use symptom alleviation techniques? So I gave you a couple of examples. When do you notice that you use them? 
And is there a way for you to ask a few why questions to see what might be a deeper root cause? For example, you have a headache. Why? Maybe there's tension. Could be dehydration, could be a lot of other things. But possibly the answer you come to is you might feel a sense of tension in your neck. Why might you feel tension? And as you ask that question, a thought of the fight that you just had with your partner pops up. And then why would that fight trigger this kind of tension in your neck? Is there something from before? Is there a pattern of this? Where is there a fear that's coming up from that? And maybe something like fear of them leaving you or rejection comes up. You could even ask a couple more questions deeper. Where does that fear of someone leaving you after a fight come up? And you might come up with some stuff that is there from childhood. This is definitely something you can explore in therapy, in a lot of trauma type of therapy, such as EMDR. Those are the kinds of things you can do. Or just even picking up some of these books to help you have a neurobiological understanding, such as the book I just mentioned, Affect Dysregulation by Alan Shore or The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Those are ones where you can use some of this just to activate some new ideas of awareness of where some of these body memories, these visceral, nonverbal body memories might be coming from and that you might have these memories that you don't even realize you're having and you're using mechanisms to alleviate the sensations from that which just keeps them at bay and doesn't acknowledge what the core beliefs are that are coming out from those. So I do want to just put a disclaimer that if there is distressing events from your childhood um, or trauma that this is something that you should probably do with a support network of some sort or therapist and use your best judgment for that of how much you want to go there. But I just wanted to put it out there as a possibility of another way to look at this idea of mindfulness, that we actually apply it to figuring out more of where these core beliefs might come from that are leading to the anxious thinking. And then the second reflection question is, when do you judge someone for not being as regulated or mature as you? And what systems, especially the sociobiological feedback systems, might they have been a part of in their early years that negatively affected some of their self-regulating capacities and how may even have society and history played a part in that in terms of their early years. So that's just something that I think for me, it helps me to find a sense of compassion, but also it fuels me to continuously find ways to figure out how we can improve different systems and mindsets. So those are just some reflection questions that you can think about. If you'd like more in-depth material, such as my free mini-book, Super Regulators and the Science of Self-Regulation, as well as one-on-one coaching and my group training program that's coming up, make sure you visit my website at stephaniefay.com. And I'm also holding a private Facebook group, so you can request to join that. It's called The Science of Mindful Systems Change, and I will occasionally be posting some live videos up there. And if you like this program, I'd love it if you could subscribe and leave me a review. Thanks for joining me.